Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that really must be where our hope rests, uh, especially in, in day today. And I know all of us have been affected by just what we've seen uh, in the news and with what's happened in Israel. Uh, heart, heart-wrenching as a terrorist group would uh, run into that country uh, killing uh, non, non-military, just innocent civilians, the destruction of, of life, children, um, and others. It's been horrifying for us to watch that, and, and we are grieving uh, with that whole thing. Uh, a part of it for us as a church, too, is we, we are very much aware of the fact that we live in a broken world. You know, this is a conflict that has been going on from the earliest parts of Genesis, really. We, we understand that. And yet, as we uh, see this played out now before our eyes, one journalist put it this way, and I think she's right. You know, when it came to the atrocities of, of the Nazis against the Jews, it took years to uncover those. And now Hamas is doing those things live on social media in front of our eyes. And so we, uh, we are praying. Uh, we also recognize that this is a complicated situation. There, there are layers to this that affect a lot of people. Um, there was a, um, centuries back when uh, the Reformation was happening in the, in the 16th century, there was a Prussian soldier that actually wrote Martin Luther and asked the question, can Christians be soldiers too? And, um, and Luther's response was, yeah, look at Romans 13. There is a way in which God uses governments and God uses armies and the sword is something that God uses to punish evil. And so there is a legitimacy to a nation defending themselves. At the same time, because we're in a fallen world, there's collateral damage. There are people on both sides that, that have that happen to them. And, and the difference though would be this. Uh, those that are acting as a nation, uh, they don't rejoice. They don't celebrate when civilians are maimed and killed. Uh, that's something that they mourn. And so that's one of the big differences that we would see in this conflict as well. But, but as we pray, we also want to recognize something else. We were, we were in this passage a few weeks back. Remember Psalm 87? What does God uh, declare about Jerusalem that he loves? Is it the city? He does love the city, but he loves something else more. Is it the dwellings of Jacob? He does love the dwellings of Jacob, but there's something he loves more. Is it the walls? He does love the walls, but he loves something else more. And what is that? The gates. Remember that? He loves the gates. Why? Because they're open. They're open to all. And then you, do you remember the nations that are listed there in that psalm? We talked about it. it was Egypt. It was Babylon. It was enemies. The enemies of God's people by God's grace. If they will repent and turn to Yahweh and trust him, they are welcomed in. And so in the midst of all this, brothers and sisters, let's not let the news cycle determine the way we look at this. We call evil evil because it is. We cry out for God's grace because we need it. But we also recognize that people need Jesus on every side. Uh, it's possible that Iran funded this whole thing. And yet when Mike Cannon was here weeks back, do you remember what he told us? Our, our friend who's involved in international outreach. The number one hotspot for where people are coming to Jesus on the planet right now is where? Iran. We have brothers and sisters there. 
Sadly, as with any conflict, we have brothers and sisters on both sides. There are innocent people in Gaza as well who have been oppressed by this terrorist group, Hamas. And sadly, Hamas uses them as shields and hides behind them. Nothing is simple. There are many layers. And so what I'd like to do right now, I just want to go before the Lord in prayer. Because here's the thing. We are called as God's people to pray. God works. God, God does things as his people come before him. He listens. He's sovereign. And so let's go before him now and, and, and intercede. Father, we come to you and, and we thank you that your word is, is clear. As there is evil in the world and as wicked people desire to destroy life and the maim, we understand that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities in the heavenly places. You have an enemy and the devil is very capable of working through not only his, his demons and fallen angels, but also people and governments, and, and even in ways of, of uh, the, the realm of geopolitics and, and everything else in this world. And so we ask right now by your grace that you would protect innocent life. Lord, we ask that, that this evil in particular that has uh, deliberately sought out the destruction of of, of the innocent, that you would, that they would be stopped, that you would bring about peace. We pray for peace for Israel. We ask for your grace to be at work in this. And yet we also would pray, Lord, that, that your church around the world, whether it be there in um, Jerusalem or whether it be uh, in far off places like Iran or other places in the Middle East, wherever it would be, we pray that your church would declare the gospel and would be a blessing to those surrounded by the horrors of this evil and, and the tragedy of war and the destruction that comes with it, Lord. We, we pray that you would be at work. And we pray as your people that we would not allow um, just some sort of news feed or other things to inform our perspective. We pray instead that your word would help us to see you and your work and your purposes through this. We thank you, Lord, that you love the gates of Jerusalem. We thank you that um, your people have been beautifully used by you as a beacon of truth and, and, and forgiveness and grace through Messiah, the one who has come, Jesus. And we understand that's one of the reasons they are so hated. And so we would ask, Lord, in this time that you would protect innocent life, that you would bring an end to this entire thing, and that we would be used by you to love what you love and to be in tune with your purposes for us in this time. Give us the grace, Lord, to even now uh, care for those around us who are affected by this conflict. Give us the grace to know how to be a, a, a beacon of truth and grace that many would be born again. Thank you for the work that you're doing around the world. Thank you for those that you've even brought here from around the world. And we ask, Lord, that, that your gospel would ring out and that life would be brought to the dead and that grace would be brought and that forgiveness would be brought by you. And we look forward to your return. And we say, Lord, come quickly.
Maranatha. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our King, our Savior, the risen one, who's coming back soon. Amen. As we uh, walk through these times together as a church family, you realize this time is important, right? Like this isn't, uh, oh, I just went to church on Sunday. Check the box and move on. Uh, The fact is people in this room are affected in different ways, not only by this situation, but by many other things. And so this really is a time to encourage one another. And so I, I, would, I would just ask that, you know, even as we leave this place, and as we spend time together in other places throughout the day, that we would just take to heart the, the call that God has on each of us to encourage and care for one another through this. Because it affects all of us in different ways. Uh, we're, we are in the Gospel of Luke right now, and I'm really glad we're here. Because you know what we get to do? We get to look at Jesus. Truly, the one who is sovereign and mighty, who rules, you know, he's coming back. We're we're told very clearly in the scriptures that he will rule, uh, even even on this very earth, for a thousand years uh, in in, uh, in Jerusalem, on the throne of David. And so we look forward to that day. And then there's going to be a new heavens, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. Pretty stunning to think about. But in the meantime, what does Jesus do? He shows us that he is completely and fully unique. And I was thinking about that just in terms of how uniqueness works. Because usually when something's unique before all of our eyes, when we see something unique, it it increases its value, doesn't it? It happens in my life a lot in a kind of a a way that, you know, just because of my background and things I enjoy. So as you know, I'm kind of a guitar uh, aficionado, right? I enjoy guitars. And for some reason, in conversations with people, guitars come up, especially when they're rare. And so just this past week, uh, Janet's dad, my wife's dad, um, was over visiting. And by the way, he plays guitar too. So I think to be in our family, if you're going to marry in, you got to play guitar. That's just how it goes. So, you know, for our daughters, deal with it, buddy. You just got to do I'll, I'll show you how, but you got to learn how to play. That's just how that works. But he was talking about a friend who, uh, who someone in, in his friend's life had, had, had passed away and they had a collection of guitars. And most of them were kind of run-of-the-mill guitars. You know, they're kind of like, you know, there's this one and there's that one. And it's kind of, you know, they're, you know there's like a, a Epiphone. Those are good guitars, by the way, but it's just kind of, you know, a, a few different types. And then he goes, but then there was this one. And it's a Gibson SG. And I'm like, my ears perked up. Oh? And I'm like, well, Mike, did you look at the serial number on that? And then I'm like, Mike, I will help you look at the serial number on that if you'd like. And as it turns out, this thing was from 1968 or 73. One of those two. I wasn't quite sure which. 68 to 73. You know what just happened to the uniqueness of that guitar? I'm like, well, Mike, I'm going to say that that thing automatically right there, you're in five figures for that guitar right there. And then we're looking at each other and we're like, let's look it up right now. Okay, let's do it. So, <laughs> so we look it up. Sure enough, that guitar at that time, or at this time right now, but from that time, was going for $38,500. So if you run into one of those, please do call me. <laughs> if you have a friend who has a garage sale and you see one, let me know. I'd be happy to show up. Yeah, right. 
But, but what makes it so valuable? Well, you can't find them anymore. You can't find them anywhere. Well, except in this guy's uh, garage, apparently. But you can't, they don't make them that way anymore. The wood, they can't get that wood anymore. By the way, that wood has aged. So what that means is the tone of the instrument, you can't reproduce that. It's on its own level. And again, so it's rare. It's, it's unique. And because of that, it increases value. What Luke is showing us about Jesus here is that Jesus is supremely unique. He's beyond estimation. There is no one like him. There never has been anyone like Jesus. There never will be anyone like Jesus. And because of that, he's calling us to, to see that clearly, to take that to heart and to live in light of that. So I want to encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Luke 5, 1 through 11. And because this is the word of God, would you please stand and follow along as I read? So we've left off with Jesus' preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And then Luke's account goes on in this way, in chapter 5, verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying on the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we've worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they'd done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled their, to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be working in and through the passage that we've just read in our hearts by your spirit. And we ask that you would, would cause us to become the people you want us to be. That we would see you more clearly, that we would love you more, that we would even take to heart your call to each of us to leave everything and follow you. So we pray you would grace us and that you would grow us, that you would be glorified in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. So as we travel through this passage, we're going to see that Jesus 
is supremely unique in several ways. And the first way we would find it is in his teaching. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Uh, he's, he's already committed. So in, in the previous passage in verse 44 of chapter 4, you'll recall he said he kept on preaching in the synagogues. Why? Well, verse 43 told us. He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. This is why I came. So Jesus is very clear about his, his mission, and he's carrying that out. And so now he finds himself standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And that's really a, a region. So uh, if you look at the, the Sea of Galilee, it's along the northern shore. It was a commercial center. There were a lot of, of fishing towns there. Fish was a big industry. You can understand why. Because fish is really good eating. Okay. And, and it was a, a key staple for, for their diet. But, but it was also a great way to, to make a living. And so... That area was saturated with different fishing villages. So there he is at the ed edge, of the, edge of the lake. And, and we find that he's, he's there. And you'll notice that the crowd is pressing in on him. Why? It tells us. Look at verse 1. They're listening to the Word of God. That phrase, Word of God, really means the Word that has come from God. So it's, it's not just anyone's Word. It's God's Word. It's God is the source of this truth that Jesus is bringing. And of course, Jesus is the Word. So it makes sense that when he's teaching, that's what's coming out. He is God. And he's bringing forward that, that reality, the truth of, of the Word. So he's standing there, and they're pressing in. And I don't know if you—could you imagine, like, so here we are, I'm, I'm preaching. Could you imagine all of a sudden, worship center's just totally full? Oh no, what are we going to do? Oh no, they're pressing in. Wait, stop. You know, it's that kind of a thing. And then imagine I like run out in the parking lot and the whole crowd follows me. And then I run to the edge of the parking lot and the whole, and our dogs are barking probably by that time, right? But the whole point, it's not going to happen. It's okay. I am not unique the way Jesus is, okay? But, but that's what his, the word is spreading about him. And they want to hear and they're gathering close. And his teaching, we've heard in the previous sections how he's teaching with authority, unlike the other scribes, right? He's speaking God's word in that way. And so they're, they're, they're longing to hear it and they're coming forward. He notices, Jesus notices two boats at the edge of the lake and, and the fishermen are out washing their nets. Why? Because everyone knows, when are you fishing? Nighttime. Why? Because that's when the fish are doing their thing, and that's when they're not going to see your net as well, and you're able to catch them and take them in. That was the time they would do it. And so that time is over, and they're just washing their nets because you had to maintain your fishing net. You couldn't just, you know, leave in the boat to dry and then use it the next, the next evening. And so we find that... Uh, as this is happening and they're washing their nets, um, there's a, a way in which he's going to try to be heard in a more clear way. So what does he do? He goes, hey, Simon, can I, can I get in your boat? And let's just go out a little ways. And by the way, that little ways is probably just a few yards, not much. But there's a, there's a place there and some conjecture that's, that's where Jesus sat. They don't know for sure. But you have this water and you have this kind of a, 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 a sloped land portion in front of the water, and it might be that Jesus was there on the, on the boat. We don't know. But we, you know how water works, right? It reflects sound, and so more people could hear. 
And Jesus sat there because, again, that was the way they would, he would teach. And he taught people from the boat. Um, but isn't it interesting, all of this desire for God's word, and I think it should, it should make us ask a question for ourselves, and that would be this. Does God's word stir that kind of desire in you? Like, do you long for God's word in that way? I think the other day someone asked me about something. What was that? It was, uh, oh yeah, there was, a, there was a concert coming up. And, um, and I think it was, uh, it was Brad Paisley or something. I can't remember what it was. But someone was, hey, Chris, do you want to go to that concert? You know what my response was? I'm getting kind of old, man. And it used to be back in the day, I'd be like, I am there. I'm going. And now I'm just kind of like seeing my couch and I'm seeing my TV and I'm seeing me sitting there, you know, with like a orange soda and some popcorn. I'm happy. I'm a simple man. I don't need that anymore, you know. There isn't a pressing desire for that. And, uh, and Janet's like, I got to pray for you. I know, honey. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've kind of gotten boring. But, but this is the kind of thing where back in the day, I would have been compelled. I would have, I am there. I want to see them in person. I want to go through all the hassle of parking and, ooh, paying for parking. And then getting into the arena, you know, and dealing with the crowds because they're there. There's a desire for that. And that's what's happening with this crowd. They long for God's word. They want to hear him. Do you have that desire for the word? You know, some of the people that we've prayed for earlier in our service, they would give anything to even have a copy of the scriptures in their own language. Some of them would risk their lives to have a few pages of the Bible in their own language. To be able to read it for themselves they would give anything for that. Do we hunger for God's word? Do we want to hear God's voice? Is this the kind of thing where even when we gather together around his word to hear it preached, is this sort of like, yeah, I'm at church because I go to church because that's what I do because you know, I'm supposed to? Or is it, no, I'm on the edge of my seat because regardless of who's standing there preaching, if they are in fact bringing forward the scriptures to me, I am by the Spirit's power at work able to hear God's voice. I want to hear him. I want to know what he says. Because not just to know more, I want to know him. Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God, through Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Personally knowing it's a relationship. And to the extent that we long to know God personally through Jesus, we will also long to hear his voice. And to the extent that we want to hear his voice, to that extent we will yearn for the word. And if that's not the case in, in our lives right now, and if that's not where you're at right now, this is a time to go before God and go, Lord, forgive me. Because you know what it means? It means we've been longing for other stuff. Here's the thing. We're hardwired with longings. You're going to long for something. 
You're going to want something. That's not the question. The question is, what are you filling that longing with? And again, if it's your walk with the Lord, if it is your personal relationship with Jesus, you're going to want to hear his voice. You're going to want to know him. I was thinking back to even uh, when Janet and I were, were dating just a few years ago, really. It was almost, they're laughing at us, honey. I'm sorry. Uh, Janet's letters are worth keeping. Mine are really not. They're not. But hers are. And so once in a while, we'll be kind of going through old pictures and her letters are there. And I'm telling you, I will read them to this day and I'm just like, that was just so sweet. You know, for me, I'm like, I love you. Donk, you know? <laughs> but she is just so just beautifully descriptive in that. Um, and to read them again and to hear them again helps me to understand her heart. Helps me to remember even those early days when we were first getting to know each other and, and, and falling in love. And so I love reading those. Um, I'm, 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 I'm eager to do that. And I think that is the heart behind someone who longs for the word. This is, is, this is God's voice. This is him communicating with us. And, and as his child, as one who's been brought into his family, he's written this so that you can seek him and enjoy him and hear him and be comforted by him and encouraged by him and convicted by him and confronted by him and brought to see your need for him and also brought to see his provision for you fully in, in Jesus Christ, his son. So again, do you have a desire for God's word? If not, there is something wrong. And I would encourage you, go before your heavenly father and deal with that with him. Jesus is supremely unique. He brought God's word. People came. They needed to hear him. They desired to hear from him. But he's, he's not only unique in his teaching, he's also unique in his commands. And we see that in verses four through seven. What does Jesus do? He, he says to Simon, hey, Simon, here we are. We're in the boat. We're in the water. You know what? I think we should go out to the deeper part. You should let down your nets. Now you got to realize for, for, for Simon, this is like ridiculous. This, is, this goes beyond common sense. This is against common sense in some ways. Uh, because he's just had a really bad night as a fisherman, okay? I mean, what do fishermen do? They know where they're fishing. They know the lake. They know the Gennesaret region in particular. They know where the fish are. They know where the fish go. They know when they're supposed to be there. They, they understand those things. But for whatever reason, that night, what did they get? Nothing. Nothing. And so when Jesus gives this command, you got to think about it. I mean, put yourself in, in Simon's place. Being a fisherman's hard, it, it, it's hard work. I mean, they are not like sitting there with poles, like, hey, you know, you want to pass me a, you know, that's not it. It's these huge nets. Some of them are hundreds of yards in width. And that's why you need more than one boat. 
And what they do is they lay these nets into the water and the nets have actually different layers. There's larger openings toward the outside then they get smaller toward the inside. The idea is the fish swim in but have no way of figuring out how to get out because of the way the mesh works. And so they, the boats go out and they encircle and then come together and that's what they haul up. So what happens here is he's been doing this all night long. They are exhausted. He wants to go to bed. You ever have that? I just want to go to bed. I'm done. And what's Jesus doing? Hey, let's go out. Okay, if they, if they go out, if they actually lower the nets again, you know what that means? They got to pull them up again. They got to clean them again. <laughs> so his getting to bed thing is being put off by several hours. Not to mention, it's the middle of the day. It's daytime. The fish are not going to be available to be caught. They're going to be able to see the nets and evade them. But what does, what does Simon do? We see he goes, okay, master, we haven't caught anything all night, but at your word, I'll, I'll do this. And you're kind of going, okay, is that, you know, a polite thing he's doing? Certainly the saying master is, you know, a, a, a term of respect. And, uh, and then something shocking happens. <laughs> because <laughs> notice in verse 6, they do what he said, and what do they enclose? Not just fish, not just a quantity of fish, but a great quantity of fish. So great that the nets actually begin to break. I mean, I don't, I, I'm not a fisherman. I'm not that, that's not... I think it was when I was a kid, I was probably in elementary school, and I'm sorry, whoever took me out probably didn't know what they were doing, but it was just really boring to me. So if you're a fisherman, you're going to be like, you're speaking against my thing. I'm, I'm not trying to insult you, and I'm sure it's way better than I know it to be. But you know how people will tell the story about the fish, like when I caught it, it was this big. And then like, you know, three weeks later when I caught it, it was like this. And then by the, a year later, it's like, it was this big, right? So this is not an exaggeration. This really happened. And you get all these different eyewitness elements included. In other words, you get what's happening to the nets. You get the fact that Simon signaled his partners to come out. Okay? They would obviously have signals as fishermen that worked together. And it was, get out here, guys. We need your help. You've got the multiple boats. Even, even the loading the boats up that much, there have been uh, findings of boats from that time period there on the Sea of Galilee. And you can actually, if you go to Israel, you'll see it, a boat that they, they, they recovered. And, and it really, it is about 30 feet long. It's huge. And there were multiple decks. And so you could see how this would work. They would load these boats up and bring them in. But this massive boat is now weighed down almost sinking. And so we look at that and, and, and we, we see what, what is going on. And then, and then you, you wonder about this. Okay, was this Jesus's omniscience? Like, did he know they were going to be here? Or is this Jesus's omnipotence? In other words, power. Did he make the fish show up at that time? Or what was it? How did this work? And we're kind of puzzled by that. But you know what? The answer is, is it one or the other? Yes. <laughs> We're meant to puzzle. 
Because certainly Simon was puzzled too. That's the whole point. How did this work exactly? Certainly it was Jesus is God. Jesus is divine. And he demonstrates his power in this amazing feat. Middle of the day, fish aren't supposed to be caught and a massive, great quantity of fish is brought in. And for a, for a seasoned fisherman like Simon, how does he explain this? What's what he supposed, he, he knows better. I mean, to us, we're like, oh, wow, fish, they got in the net. No, this doesn't happen. Fish aren't like dogs. You don't go, hey, buddy, come here. You know, they, no, they don't, they don't show up because you want them to. It's hard. And so we find Simon calling to his, his partners and they come out. And we've got these details of the eyewitness uh, a part of the account as well. And, and we, we see again that, that the Lord himself is showing himself to be power, powerful, all powerful. And yet we also see that his commands go against conventional wisdom. And, that, and that's the question for us as well. What do you do with Jesus' commands, especially when they go against conventional wisdom? Do you listen? Certainly we're told here, we're called to obey his commands. Do we obey them or do we go, well, that doesn't quite make sense. Maybe it's in your business dealings where you're like, no, everyone kind of does this shortcut. It's not honest, but you know, when Jesus says, honor God, work with integrity. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in right now and, and you're, you're being maybe, maybe even tempted to enter into something with someone that you know does not honor God. And is it like, well, I, you know, I think it's okay. Maybe there's some area where you're being called to be courageous for Christ and you realize the backlash could be really, really hard for you. Eh, I don't need to do that. I'll do it later. I'm not sure what it would be, but the question is this. When conventional wisdom says this and the commands from Jesus says this, what do we do? And the call here is whether it goes along with quote-unquote common sense or not, we're called to follow the Lord. So Jesus is, is supremely unique in his teaching, in his commands, and also in his holiness. This is the climax of the entire passage right here in verses 8 and 9. What, what, look at Simon's reaction. You would think, if I was Simon, I'd be going, whoa, check out all that fish. I had a lousy night before. I've got enough now to last us for like a whole month. Thank you, Jesus. That's not how he responds. No, instead, it's fascinating. He's so struck by what just happened. He's so struck because he's seeing who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, you can see that he sees Jesus more clearly by the term he uses for him. Look at verse 8. Notice he says, go away from me, Lord. 
What did he call him before? Master. Now he's calling him Lord. What, what would cause him to say this? For I am a sinful man. Well, he's responding that way because you know what? When people see the Lord, they see themselves and they go, I am not holy. And he is. Go ahead, if you wouldn't turn to Isaiah chapter 6. You'll find it on page 491 in the Old Testament there, if you're using the Bible in the, in the chair rack. Isaiah 6. So here, the, the marker for this time frame that Isaiah is having this vision is at a time when King Uzziah died. And so it just says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Uh, at that time, you could tell how great a king was by the length of their robe. And so if you had like this king and this king and one's robe was that long, the other one was longer, okay, that king is greater. You'll notice that the Lord's robe fills the entire temple. It can't even be contained. It's billowing throughout the entire temple. And then, verse 2, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, holiness has the concept of being set apart, being other than. It has the idea of purity, but it also has the idea of being separate. And in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you know, we have good, better, best. We do it with word endings. In Hebrew, they do it with repetition. So to say it twice is to emphasize it. To say something three times in a row, that's the superlative. That's like, you know, Great, greater, greatest. We would use the EST for the superlative. They would just say it three times. So here, these angels are calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He is completely other than. He is pure. And notice the whole earth is full of his glory. And then the description goes on. And the foundations of the thresholds tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. But now, notice Isaiah the prophet's reaction. When he sees, notice, the Lord. Isaiah sees the Lord. And look at what he says in verse 5. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we encounter the Lord and we see him for who he is, our own sinfulness becomes very apparent. And we bow down and go, Lord, I am not worthy to be anywhere near you. And that's exactly what Peter does as well. So when we actually perceive God, we end up perceiving his holiness. When we see his holiness, we see our unholiness. We are convicted of our sin. And we confess that. And the, by the way, this is always true whenever anyone encounters the Lord. If you're here today as a believer, there was a point in time for you when you were convicted of your sin. Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who 
mourn. Happy are those who mourn. It's a paradox. What are they mourning over? Their sin. Another thing to keep in mind would be this. If you are claiming to be a believer, but you've never been convicted of your sin, you need to ask yourself a question. Am I actually a believer? Because this, when people encounter the Lord, when they encounter Christ, that is something everyone experiences. That's a part of what, what it means to cry out for mercy, to cry out for forgiveness, to receive the gift of God's grace, to receive that. We, we see the need for it first. I think uh, the analogy that is helpful for that, we were talking about a little bit downstairs in the, in the newcomers class today. If I'm, you know, if I'm uh, walking next to you down by Pier 39, and I look at you and I say, hey, I really love you. I really care about you. And then I jump in the waters and get swept out to the current and drowned. You'll be just like, what's wrong with that guy? But if you fall into the water and I jump in to rescue you, oh, that makes sense, right? There's a need. There's something to be rescued from. For us, when we come to Jesus, we need to see our sin because God is rescuing us from his wrath against sin. So we, 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 we can't um, have any other response in terms of encountering God other than, well, it has to include this understanding that, uh, that, that we are not holy, holy, holy. He is. And so seeing him awakens conviction has seeing the Lord awakened conviction in your heart? Is that a part of your story, your life with him? Maybe you're sensing it right now for the first time. Maybe you haven't come to that place of really seeing your need for a savior. But the reality is, is his wrath is coming in judgment of sin because he is holy, holy, holy. He can have no connection with participation with sin. He's pure. And yet, thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. And that's what we see in this account. Jesus is, is not only supremely unique in his teaching and in his commands and his holiness, but he's also supremely unique in his grace. He doesn't leave us there, and he didn't leave, leave Peter there. If you turn back to, to Luke, look at what happens. We find that in verse 10, James, John, and John, the sons of Zebedee, are, are partners with Simon. So they're going to be a part of what happens in the, in the future, in the narrative. So Luke brings them in here. But then notice at the end of verse 10, what does Jesus say to Simon? Do not fear. Whoa. Grace. It's very similar to the Isaiah account, by the way, in chapter 6. And we don't have time to go there right now, but I would encourage you to read that this week. Very similarly, God takes care of Isaiah's sin problem as well. But, but the grace from Jesus here includes two parts. There's comfort and there's a call. And they happen together. It's really fascinating. He says, do not fear I've got you. 
I've got you, Simon. I'm not going to let you go. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to get away from me. Isn't that beautiful? Sinners don't repel Jesus. Jesus is not repelled by sinners. Jesus comes to sinners. He embraces them. He cleanses them. He forgives them. And then you know what else he does? He commissions them to go out and be used by him to rescue other sinners. So Jesus isn't repelled by sinners. He receives and forgives them by his grace. And then he commissions them to reach others, other sinners with the good news about him. And so he says, don't fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Okay, right there at the end of verse 10, there's something beautiful happening that I really want to, want to bring out because that word for catching men isn't just the word catching. It literally means catching alive. It's two words. There's the word for life, zoe, and then the word for catching brought into the same term. And that's an emphasis here for a reason. You know why? Because when you're a fisherman and you catch fish, what do you get? Dead fish. And Jesus is making a point here. You're going to be catching not dead fish. You're going to be catching live people. You're not going to be bringing people to confinement and death. You're going to be bringing people to freedom and life. Stark contrast. And so this comfort is given, this call is given, and they respond. They brought their boats to land. Do you, you know how much money they probably invested in those boats? That was their livelihood. They brought them to land, and notice they left everything and followed him. This call, it's a consuming call. This is a call that overrides everything. Now, when it says brought the boats to land, it may be that they did not, in fact, abandon them. They might have left it to their families to continue running. There could have been other partners that were part of the fishing. We know that later on by the other accounts we have in the Gospels, that in fact, after uh, Jesus was, was uh, killed on the cross and buried, we, we find um, Simon and others, what are they doing? They're fishing again. So it's very possible that they, they, they left that with family. They went off. By the way, isn't it interesting that when Jesus comes back to Simon Peter, where is he meeting him? At the lake. What does he say from the shore? Hey, let down your nets over there. What do they do at that time? They bring up a bunch of fish and they look and go, oh, it's the Lord. <laughs> why? They're remembering this. That's why. Oh, yeah, we've been here before. Oh, yeah, we let down the, there's all that fish. It's the Lord, you know. So they're going to have a scene like this again. Again, a demonstration of grace. Again, a commissioning of sorts. Feed my sheep, tend to my lambs, feed my sheep. All that's going to happen. We'll get there. But the question is this. Have you received Christ's call on your life? And does it, in fact, override everything? Because his call to us is to leave all in order to gain more. That's really what he does. This is not just their call. It's not just my call. This is our call. 
You know, we're going to close our time together here. We're going to pray. We're going to walk out these doors. We're going to get in cars. We're going to go to various places. Throughout this week, we're going to scatter to, to workplaces and, and schools and, and other things with family and neighbors and friends. The question is this, does this overriding call impact the way we live at all those times? Because that's what Jesus' grace does. He forgives, yes. He says, don't be afraid, yes. But he also, as he grants forgiveness and grace and brings us in, he gives us a commission to be that light and to share that grace with others. So that's our call together. And when we, when we do that, we are now being a beacon of that very grace that we've received from him. So has that call overridden your life? May it be so. And let's make sure that when we're living throughout our days, that we live in light of the supreme uniqueness of Jesus. And may it be something that brings us great joy and that we can also be used by him to touch the lives of other people with that same light and truth and salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and, and pray that you would work this in us. Lord, that, that, that we would be, by your grace, amazed by you. And that in that, without fear, we would be courageous in you and that we would joyfully set about the business of, of, of catching live people, not for captivity, but for freedom to walk with you. And we pray that you would be glorified in this, in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.